and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I wanted to let you know how you might be able to help us out here at the podcast and share a few things that I have been up to. First, we recently launched a new company called Strong Skills. It's a coaching and training company that believes mindset, introspection, communication, resilience, teamwork, empathy, really any inner skills. A lot of the skills we talk about on this podcast that are typically referred to as soft skills are actually at the core of successful leadership and performance. And in our mind, these skills are not soft. These are actually skills that drastically impact individuals, teams, and organizations. Perhaps they're the key to your success. We believe that these skills are actually strong skills, and I'm super excited for what we are doing and the team we have assembled. If you're interested in learning more about what we're up to, head on over to strongskills.co, that's strongskills.co, and check us out. Also on that website, you'll see a tab about my new book, Shift Your Mind, which breaks down nine mental shifts to help you thrive in preparation and performance. If you've listened to this podcast, you've heard me talk a lot about those that shift their mind. And a lot of times our guests reference their capacity to shift their mind in preparation to performance. This book took me about three years to write, and I'm extremely excited to share it with you. If you're interested in pre-ordering the book for yourself, you can do so at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and IndieBound. Also, if you're interested in buying a bulk order of at least 20 or more copies, we've created a special offer that includes a shout out on this podcast, an hour long Zoom call with yours truly to discuss the book and a mention on social media. We hope the book can help you and your team thrive. Now to today's guest. David Epstein was introduced to me by Dan Pink. Dan Pink is one of my favorite authors, and I feel honored that he has endorsed my book and has just become somebody who's been an amazing mentor for me as I jump into this writing world. And when he said, hey, I can introduce you to David Epstein, I was like, yes, please. Uh, I read the book Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World, and the book The Sports Gene years ago. And they're two of my favorite books. They're two of the books I highly recommend to organizations in, in and outside of sport. And David was previously 
media science and investigative reporter at ProPublica, and prior to that, a senior writer at Sports Illustrated. He's done amazing work. He has a TED Talk that's been viewed over eight and a half million times. And once again, his his both of his books are New York Times bestselling books. Uh, he is an amazing guy. You'll find him enlightening, intelligent, and highly, highly curious. So this is a discussion that I know you'll enjoy. I can't tell you how much I loved chatting with David. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, David Epstein. David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, this is I'm like a nerd right now. This is super exciting for me. Uh, when you get to talk to people whose books you admire and whose work you admire, it's, it's one of the reasons why this podcast has been really fun for me and hopefully uh, people have enjoyed listening to it. So um, thank you for all the work that you do. And um, it, it's, it's definitely made me better at my craft and uh, has helped organizations that I work with as well. We got connected by Dan Pink, who's another person who, uh, whose books are are amazing and is somebody I have immense respect for. And I actually wanted to start with Dan because um, we connected a little while back and then a couple of weeks later, I saw Dan at an event taking notes and trying to learn from the speaker who happened to be Ryan Holiday, who's, who's a great author in his own right. And Dan's in the crowd taking notes. And then I invited Dan to join um, another learning experience and he shows up, he's, he's taking notes, he's learning. And so one of the things I, I've found to be so authentic about Dan is his, his genuine curiosity. And as I read your work, it's so clear that you have this deep curiosity. And so I was curious to start there and just try to understand where, where does that come from? I'm curious about your curiosity. Where does your curiosity come from? Yeah, it's a good question. It's interesting you mentioned Dan in that context too, because I, I had emailed with him a little bit, but then when I moved to DC a couple of years ago, we we met in person and we both agreed pretty quickly that we ended up doing sort of the odd thing that we do, which is writing books that sort of sometimes have some concepts in, you know, in, in common learning and performance and this sort of thing. But because we have this sort of wide ranging curiosity, so we kind of had to make up our own jobs of, of writing about things we find interesting and hoping that other people find them interesting. Um, and, and I don't know what the wellspring of that is. You know, I think in some ways I've always been very kind of science curious, like really interested in space, you know, and how the earth works and all those sorts of things. And I kind of think that in some ways, I mean, I guess I did well in science, but I don't think it came super easily to me, I wouldn't say. And I think there was sort of this desire to understand how things worked mixed with it not coming that easily, which constantly got me into being this sort of like inveterate question asker. I noticed that too in, in journalism. One of the things I think helped me be a magazine writer was when people would tell me about their job or something. They would say, well, first I, I went to this job and then I, you know, I went to some other very different thing. And I would kind of stop them and be like, okay, how did you get between those two things? And they would sort of say, well, I was doing this one. And I realized it wasn't right. So I went to this other. No, no, no. I mean, when did you first have the conversation where you thought this one might not be working? And then how did you get connected to someone in this other industry? Well, because it's for some reason, I don't, it's almost like I have a poor understanding of certain things in how, in how people's lives play out, but that I really want to understand them. And so I just end up asking a lot of questions and listening to people's stories. And are your, are your parents like that, David? Um, my father is much, quieter than I am. I think like when he talks, he, he, he's not as abusive of words as I am. He, like he makes them <laughs> matter. I, I don't know. I mean, they're, 
they are, they certainly encouraged me and allowed me to um, follow my, my curiosity, but I can't, I can't point to anything where I say like, well, I saw them doing this, therefore, therefore I did that. And on the curiosity standpoint, but again, they, they certainly encourage it. So I'm, so I'm not, I'm not even really sure. And it, and it isn't something I would say I always, ha- so in terms of reading, I read voraciously now, and right? I'm always reading something like multiple books a week that really didn't develop until my late twenties. I wouldn't say, but when I, I was talking to my wife about this recently, cause we had some bookshelves built, you know, just before the pandemic. And I was thinking about the place I was living when we first met, I could carry everything I had, including my books in like a duffel bag, you know, now like I can't put the books on my nightstand into a duffel bag. So I'm not really sure. And I was reading, sorry, I'm going off on these like various tangents here, but um, Tommy Orange wrote this book. I don't know if you heard this book there, there, but it was this great book. Um, it was on like Obama's reading list. It just, it was one of like the novels of the year of last year. He was a first time author. He's an urban uh, native American. And he sort of said, I've read all these books about Native Americans and none of them spoke to me because I grew up in Oakland, you know? And so it's incredible. It's like this series of interlocking short stories. You know, I think it was a National Book Award finalist. I don't know, but whatever. Incredibly uh, uh, esteemed. And when I would go to Reagan Airport, it's like all over the bookstores there and everything. So not only esteemed critically, but also a massive bestseller. And again, called There There. And I, I got... I was reading this interview with him. I subscribed to this like independent book subscription thing. I get one every month and it comes with an exclusive Q and A with the author. And they asked him, what do you, they always ask the authors, like, what do you think is your secret to your success? And it's kind of tongue in cheek. Like the authors are allowed to say, Oh, because I eat raisin bran in the morning, or they can say something <laughs> serious, whatever they want. And his was something like, I think it's because I got a late start. I just took a job working in a bookstore and was like, wow, look at all this stuff, you know, that I hadn't been looking at before. And I wasn't sort of over it. Like some of my friends were, so this was like a new thing that I got super enthusiastic to and dove into. And I sort of feel that way, not, not to remotely to compare my experience to his, but it's like something clicked on about reading later in my twenties as a way to absorb knowledge. And I just like became voracious after that. I don't really know what to attribute it to, but to, sorry, I'm going to interrupt me because I'm just like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to interrupt you just for a minute. It's interesting because I relate to what you're talking about. When I was in college, I remember I was taking a history class and the professor gave me a D on like a 12 page paper. And I was like, I wrote the paper. It's 12 pages. Like, why are you giving me a D? Like, so I met with him and I go to his office and he sits me down and he goes, so did you read the book? And I was like, uh, uh, he's like, did you read the book? And I go, well, I read some of it. He's like, no, you either read the book or you didn't. And I was like, well, I can't say I read. He's like, so why are you here? You can't. And I say that story just because I too did not fall in love with learning until I actually got into sports psychology later in grad school. And then I sort of realized what are the books that are of interest to me? And then I could go after those books and it aligned with my interests. And that didn't mean it was so narrow in focus, but the, in, my interests are pretty wide ranging. And so that was clear to me. And then another thing that I just want to point out to you that's interesting is my dad is a journalist by trade, but went to law school. And I think you told me before we started recording that your brother is a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just thinking about my dad right now who's, who, who asks great questions. And he's kind of like a combination maybe of you and your brother, like journalism and, and law. And so I'm curious about your brother. Is he also super curious? Yeah, he totally is. He absolutely is. And also, by the way, my parents, my parents are the law firm of Epstein and Epstein. It's just them. 
and and my father the a way that he certainly does resemble me is his legal practice is focused on mental health issues and so he's dealing with doctors and psychologists and psychiatrists a lot so in that sense he is and this is something that only really occurred to me like in the last couple of years he's he's very much in the business of um, breaking down and making understandable complex medical and psychological information sometimes, which is in some way, you know, some ways similar uh, to what I'm doing is trying to communicate some of these complicated concepts in, in a, you know, in a succinct way. And by the way, to, to go to the, the curiosity issue, I mean, the thing that got me into writing in the first place, because I was training to be a geologist, you know, it was like living in a tent in the Arctic when I decided for sure I was going to become a writer. And was I had this running partner who, um, you know, his family of Jamaican immigrants, first guy, and his, he was one of the top ranked guys in his uh, age group in the 800 meters. It was the first guy in his family to go to college and he dropped dead at the end of a race. And I got really curious about how that could happen to a guy, you know, in his state of health and ended up having his family sign a waiver allowing me to gather up his medical records and investigate it and all this stuff. Long story short, he had this uh, genetic mutation that's very, that's the, by far the most common cause of sudden death in athletes. And I decided I wanted to merge my interests in sports and science and write about this for, for a, uh, you know, for a wide audience, like not people spending their disposable income on science publications. And the, the exploration of that turned into so much more than I expected it to be. And this was like my, ended up being my first cover story at Sports Illustrated about sudden death and athletes, but it just, it was sort of a revelation experience to me where I did something I felt like was meaningful. Um, you know, it never closes that hole, but, 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 but David, yeah. Yeah. So there's something there that I just want to pull yeah. on, which yeah. is you experience pain and then you leverage your curiosity to go find out and learn about. And yeah. look, we're sitting here having this conversation. We're both in Washington DC right now, but we're not in person because of the pandemic, yeah. uh, which has been painful for a lot of different people on a lot of different fronts. And then we also have rioting or protesting both um, across the, the country and even in the world. And there's pain that's been sparked by um, a lot of different pieces to the puzzle. And it's interesting because over the last couple of months, I've had clients that have switched jobs, like pivoted their jobs. I have clients that have pivoted the way they communicate. I've had clients that are thinking differently about how they want to make an impact and what they want to do. And so uh, there is like that idea that pain often is what predicates behavioral change. And so as you're telling your story, I think that combination of it's not just pain, but it's also the willingness to step into it and then go learn and grow and develop. And so as I'm hearing your story, it's, that's just connecting for me. I don't know how you think about that. Totally. I mean, my, my favorite great example, as you say, that pops into my head is my favorite nonfiction writer. And one of my, one of my favorite people I'm friends with him is the writer, Sebastian Younger. And, you know, he was in his late twenties working as an arborist harnessed in the upper canopy of a pine tree when he accidentally sliced open the back of his leg with a chainsaw, right? He's, he's very proud of having seen his own Achilles tendon. He's that kind of guy. And this gave him the idea to write about dangerous, but underappreciated jobs. And he's limping around. He was living in Gloucester, Massachusetts at the time. He's limping around two months later when a fishing vessel goes missing off the coast of Gloucester, Massachusetts. And he says, Hmm, maybe commercial fishing is the, you know, the job I should write about. That becomes the book, the perfect storm. Right. So if you've heard of the, if you use the phrase, the perfect storm, it's because Sebastian almost lopped his foot off with a chainsaw and saw an opportunity there. And he's adamant. He says, everything great that's happened in my life was a, was a disaster 
you know, that I waited to see how it turned out later. And so do I think we're attuned to that. Do you think there's something underneath it besides curiosity, like the willingness to step into it? Is there, what would you, what would you label that? Or how would you think about that? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, both of, for, for sure, my first book and somewhat my second one, I mean, my first book, for sure, The Sports Gene is literally a list of questions that accrued um, from my own participation or viewing of sports that I then set out to answer in book form, like just these questions that stuck in my head. And I think there's a little aspect, actually, of frustration and sometimes even anger to it. Like when my friend died, I was, I was kind of mad. I don't know. You know, there's nobody to be mad at, but I was kind of mad. And, and sometimes when I see something that just doesn't add up to me, I'm frustrated. And like, I want to investigate it and I want to, to share it once I find out what that is. So, so for me, actually, I'm sometimes propelled by like a feeling of frustration um, at not being able to sufficiently think about something the way that I want to, I guess. And, and so that doesn't sound very good, right? You don't want to tell people to get frustrated or angry, but I found that it can be very useful emotions sometimes. I don't know. Yeah. I think we make the mistake of thinking that there's good emotions and bad emotions and anger, sadness, frustration. Like I, I think those emotions are necessary. And I think a lot of people just, and especially if you go into like, Oh, just be positive all the time. What, what you miss is the potential opportunity to take action on an emotion that you feel if you do it in a strategic manner and you leverage it the right way, it often can be the impetus for, for changing and changing our behavior. And so um, I, I, I don't think anger is always good by any stretch of the imagination, but if we don't feel it, then we're missing a part of life. And like, that's, that's just a reality. So, um, yeah, I think feeling all of the emotions has, have, have value. I mean, my last, you know, my last job, um, before I left to, to finish range was at ProPublica, which does all investigative stuff. And it was clear to me when I'm there, you know, people have different personalities and a lot of the people there when they get when they publish or get toward the end of an investigative project they're really stoked they like draw energy from the part where you're meeting with lawyers and arguing with them about what you can get into print and then when everybody you know starts threatening to sue you when it comes out they're like they're like sucking this up like energy and getting bigger you know and for me I don't like that part I don't I don't like the part where I'm meeting with lawyers and doing a fake deposition you know and I don't like everybody uh, criticizing me on the internet and all that but I keep coming back to those stories because once I get curious enough about something that doesn't quite seem right or explained well enough, I just get like some frustration at like, I want to understand it better. And then I really want to share it. So even though I always toward the end of investigative project, find myself saying, why, why remind me never to do this again. I, I always end up doing it again because you just get curious about something. I, I do have this like feeling of frustration. It sometimes becomes anger. If I think, um, there's something that needs to be talked about that, that isn't being talked about enough or correctly. With that in mind, you write the sports gene, you write range. When I started this podcast, people would be like, well, who's it for? Who's the podcast for? And I just finished my first uh, book and it'll come out in October. I'll, I'll send I'll send you the PDF and you can tell me it sucks or you can tell me it's great. Uh, but the, you know, the, the publishers, like who's, let's get the audience, let's drill down on the audience. And yeah, I, I really struggle with that because oh, yeah. I think what I do is I lean into the things that I'm interested in. So even this podcast, 
the, the people I interview, I was talking to somebody yesterday about this. They're like, well, who, who do you have on your show? And I go, people I'm interested in talking to and people that are living intentionally and, and thoughtfully. Um, and so it, it could be an activist. It could be an athlete. It could be a sports coach. It could be a, a CEO. It could be an author. I, like yeah. the, the, the vehicle that they're using is kind of irrelevant to me. What's more relevant is who they are. And so I'm going to start with one part of this question, which is, how do you, I'm going to just ask this question instead of stacking them, but I have a follow-up that'll come next. How do you answer the question as far as who the audience is when you're exploring your inner curiosity? How, how, do, you, how do you think about the audience as you're writing or as you're researching? Uh, gosh, you know, what you said just resonated with me so much because honestly, when I took my, when I did my first book proposal, when I would write like really sciencey stuff at Sports Illustrated, which was my favorite stuff to do, we'd inevitably get letters from people that were like, I'm not subscribing to the New England Journal of Medicine here. You know, why isn't another NFL art? I'm like, these people haven't read the New England Journal of Medicine lately. But, um, but you know, you, you always get a few letters like that. Often people who threaten not to subscribe, we'd look them up and they didn't subscribe anyway. So. Um, but, you know, I didn't, I have honestly never put that much thought into who I think the audience might be. And this may be a failing of mine. And, and so, I think I got a little bit attuned at SI to thinking that my oddball interests were niche interests. And then I wrote the sports gene, not expecting it, thinking that it was sort of my passion project on the side. And then it turned out there were a whole bunch of people that were interested in the same stuff that I was interested in, but I, I didn't know how to target them at the time. Um, so I actually don't spend much. I think I got lucky that the first book took off on its own. So for the second one, I, I sort of didn't have to try to uh, pitch the publisher on the audience specifically. Um, and I never really have. The, the main thing that I keep in mind, you should see this newsletter I just started, right? I call it the range report because it doesn't even have, you know, doesn't even have a top, it's something I think is interesting and relevant this week, right? But so, so I, I don't, the main thing I keep in mind as opposed to what industry or whatever people are in that'll be interested is more the level of explanation. That's, that's what I think about. I mean, I sort of think about people like, like me, except who have no background in the things that I just spent a bunch of time researching, right? Like me pre-researching. So, so I spend time thinking about the, the level of background the audience coming to it will have, but not basically not at all about their age or what industry they're in. And, and I think a lot of people would suggest that that's a failing of mine actually, but. Um, how, how so and why? Because I'm sure I could, like with this newsletter, I'm sure I could target it to, like if I wanted to write just about like strictly performance stuff, um, you know, every edition, it would be a lot easier to categorize. It just got recommended on some, like someone was recommending newsletters and there was this one's for improving your habits and this one is for meditation and this one is for losing weight. And this, the range report is kind of just some general stuff that, you know, is interesting. <laughs> like, but it's kind of the idea of range though. The book, the book is about the power of stepping into things outside of just your inner, I think you used a term from Kahneman, like the uh, inside, something inside, inside view. Yeah. Inside view. And um, so I, I think it, it's, it sort of goes with what you did with range, but I actually want to go back one step to sports gene. And so race in today's, day and age is a hot topic for a lot of reasons. Um, but you stepped into some stuff that maybe someone would say is controversial or um, I, I found it thought provoking, but I think probably took some cojones, took some fearlessness on your part. So I'm curious, 
when you're writing it, how were you able to step into like the fearlessness to say, I'm going to put this out there, even though I don't want to say it will offend people, but it has the possibility of offending somebody. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I don't think it was a fearlessness. I think there's always that fear there. It was just, I was confident in the research, um, you know, and made sure to <laughs> do my citations thoroughly uh, and, and back it up. So it's not that it's not the absence of fear. It's the, the doing of homework. Um, and also I sort of felt like there was a time when I started doing the research that should I really write about this? But then again, I got this sort of, this sort of anger thing that propelled me a little bit. Like for example, in one section where I write about, you know, how, um, in people from, uh, people of recent descent from areas that had like incredibly high malaria rates, like where a lot of African-Americans um, uh, descend from, they, those people tend to have lower oxygen carrying capacity um, in their blood and, and then do people who are from these non-malarial regions. That doesn't have anything to do with them being black. It has to do with them because, right, this one thing I mentioned in the book is basically you could get rid of every white person in the world and you would barely lose any genetic variability, right? Like white people are very similar to one each other genetically because we all descend from a, you know, we're all a subpopulation basically of African ancestors. And, and so I realized that to say that I would be saying, oh, there are these differences between at least people in America, you know, but there was a medical history of ignoring some of those differences that led to disasters, right? Like the World Health Organization, for example, which had nonprofits bringing certain dietary supplements over to these areas of Africa because they had used um, medical measures that were done only on white people, only on Europeans, assumed that they applied to people who lived in these, these high malarial regions in Africa, and so brought them these dietary supplements that changed some of their blood physiology, and then lots of kids started dying from malaria. And so I think it was presumptuous of them to say, Oh, we can use we can use only these these European measures and then just extrapolate them to everyone else because there's no differences and they got a bunch of people killed and they had to reel back that recommendation um, and there were things like that and like the fact that this idea because the danger in the idea that I was writing about is this idea that somehow if you say one population is good at certain sports that means they're they're worse intellectually which is total nonsense right this is that wasn't even an idea until athleticism became associated with African-Americans started Jack Johnson, but then really with Jesse Owens, where Hitler's idea was to say, you know, this race is the best of sound of body and mind. And then Jesse Owens came and reigned on that parade. And so they had to do a marketing trick to say, okay, but that's because they're closer to animals. Right? So I think you have to, you have to get into the nitty gritty if you want to grapple with sort of the origin of where some of the really nefarious ideas come from, I think. And I didn't think I could do that without, because my, I've seen books that say, you know, his ideas were stupid, but my curiosity was, I want to see like where they stem from. Like I've never found a satisfactory answer. And so I felt, uh, I just didn't feel like I could stomach learning that stuff and then not writing about it, even if it was, if it was touchy, you know, what, what am I in that business? I, and I realized it, it might get me in trouble, but, Fortunately, I think, you know, fortunately, like the journal Science and Nature reviewed it. And, and um, I think that was very helpful out of the gate that they like backed up the research. You mentioned not necessarily fearless, but making sure you were prepared and making sure you put in the work and, and had, you know, dotted your I's, crossed your T's. Do you ever get imposter syndrome? Oh my gosh, all the time. The, 
I was talking to Adam Grant about this recently. I don't know if you talked to him, but I bet you know his work. Um, and <laughs> by the time anything I do, basically anything important to me reaches the, the an audience, I'm already a total rank novice in whatever I'm doing next. So I'm in a perpetual state of feeling like a freshman at life, basically. I think which ensures that I'm constantly having uh, imposter syndrome. So yeah, I, I embrace the Zen concept of beginner's mind and not on purpose because I actually am always, always really, so very, very much so. Very I'll much give so. you, I'll give you the sort of framework of my book, which is your mindset for preparation is actually different than your mindset for performance. And you hit on this in range without necessarily going exactly there. But for example, you should be a novice in preparation, but then step into expertise when you're performing. I think there was an old saying like, write drunk, edit sober. Like that idea of, you know, letting yourself go when you're performing, but then going back and critiquing and using your inner critic and making sure that you have that. So basically the book is these nine mental shifts that people can make in preparation and performance. And I think the mistake people make is to say that you should be one way all the time. And you hit on it from a specialization standpoint. It's like, I should just drill and specialize in my sport. And your argument that you make quite well is the science backs up that that's not true. There's even anecdotal evidence. If you look at Roger Federer and others that says, hey, you want to have a mixture of, of elements. I'm curious though, have you, have you thought deeply about, and this is where Dan Pink and I probably connected on this idea of when. Dan's book, When, gets into like time and time of day. For me, my book is much more about when, when it comes to preparation and performance and the idea of the mindset that we might need when we're watching film and, and breaking things down. That's very humble. But when we step between the lines on game day, we need to have this inner arrogance, this sense of belief in ourselves that is not going to get questioned when we miss our first 10 shots or what have you. Have you thought about that either as an athlete, as a writer, as a speaker? You have different elements to, to you. Have you thought about preparation and performance and how the mindset might be different? I, I have. Um, and, and I find that you know, some version of imposter syndrome to be often helpful in um, the preparation phase. So like, for example, in Range, where I wrote the, the chapter about the Venetian orphans who became these great musicians. When I was going through that stuff, I'm thinking, you know, gosh, who am I to write about music? And then, but then you start thinking, okay, how is a musicologist probably going to critique me? <laughs> right. And then, so I think that that takes you to a place of really being careful and doing, doing some, some extra work at the same time, eventually you have to be confident in that material. Like eventually it's got to go on the page and it's going to go out to a bunch of people and you have to be confident. And I especially feel that in speaking because I was, you know, I, I ended up being like a nationally competitive runner. Um, and, uh, I was, I, I would get very nervous before races. <laughs> I'm, I've done a lot of speaking now and I still get nervous before talks, right? So I still have that feeling, but once, once the gun would fire in a race or once I'm up on stage, like I hate the waiting part, but once I'm up there, I'm, I'm confident because I've done that. I've done that preparation. And then I get that feeling, you know, the haze in the barn, as they say, which is you've done the work. Nothing's changing now. You don't have to think about, you, you've done the work to do this performance. So just rely on the training that you've done. And I think that's like liberating in a way, freeing sort of. And that's the stuff I love. So I watched your conversation with uh, Malcolm Gladwell at Sloan in I think 2014. I went to Sloan in maybe 17 or 18. I'm kind of upset I wasn't there in 2014 to see you all in person. Is we were there in 19 again. We did a rerun in, in 19. I, I missed you. I think it was 2017 when I went, which I found it to be great. And I met all kinds of awesome people. Um, really fascinating conference with 
there are so many nerds in one place. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Uh, but, I said that's the only conference I'll ever, Malcolm and I outdrew Meek Mill. I'm like, that's the only time that'll ever happen in our lives. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's probably it. Yeah, but, but I'm watching you on stage at that point. And when did Sports Gene come out? Uh, late 2013. So it had just come out. And now you're on stage with Malcolm Gladwell. Who... First time I ever met him, by the way. <laughs> so for people that don't necessarily read nonfiction, Oh, Gladwell's books are, I don't know, the probably most popular books for, I don't, I don't know how to quantify that, but one of the best-selling nonfiction authors in history, for sure. There we go. The so, so, so I'm watching you on stage and it was really interesting. Like I watched the recording and I think I could tell you were nervous in the beginning, Yeah, but, but then you did, you shifted and you could tell it was like, I could see that shift occur. It's like, no, I know what I'm talking about. Here's the evidence I have. And you could see yourself ground in that, in that space, in that, in that area. And, and since I've seen you have conversations again in 2019 or at uh, the 92nd street, Y, where I've actually been there before doing a presentation, it's a really cool spot. Um, but I'm curious for you, is there anything you intentionally do to make sure that once you're on stage as a speaker, whether it's with a Gladwell or you're presenting in front of, I'm sure you do a lot of corporate speaking or conferences. Is there anything you do to make sure, yes, the hay's in the barn, but is there anything you do to, to make sure that when it's time to go, you're, you're ready to go? Is there anything intentional that you do to make sure that your mind's where it needs to be? I usually, if I can, I try to, I used to do a little bit of, and this is getting a little bit in the weeds and the, the prep for that Gladwell thing was a little interesting too, if you want to talk about that. But the um, I got, it was very helpful for me when I was a competitive runner in college, when I established a, a solid like pre pre race routine that I could return to. That was pretty, that was pretty solid. And what was it, David? Can you just go over it? What was the routine? Yeah. It was basically, so you'd run around at a certain pace for a little while, then do um, stretching with a rope called you know, um, um, active isolated stretching basically. And then, um, do uh, some plyometric drills and then some sprints and, and just doing things. And then I would go and do a couple minutes of what's called autogenic training, which is basically uh, you lower your blood pressure and your pulse rate. You, you learn a sequence of breathing and like internal mantras um, where you can, you can just lower your blood pressure and your heart rate and things like that and, and get in sort of a calm state of mind. And once you've trained yourself to do it, then you can cue it just with a little bit of breathing. So it's sort of like a form of meditation basically. And I found that to be really, really helpful. Um, and to sort of, I don't know how to describe it, like disentangle your mind. Because when you're, when you're leading up to the race, my feeling was all of a sudden I would start to feel pressures from everything, didn't even have to do with the race. Oh, I've got all this homework when I go back. Oh my, got to smooth this thing over with my girlfriend and the race. And if it goes bad, like I'm, you know, the people on this team are my social circle. So then that'll be terrible. And somehow it just moved some of those other things aside and said, just worry about the race for now. That's enough to worry about. And I, I try to get a couple minutes alone and do that before uh, talks. Anyway, now I, it, I don't even have to be alone though, because I've done it. I can sort of cue it to some degree in my head. Um, and so I, so I try to do that a little bit, this autogenic uh, training. Maybe that sounds a little hokey, but it's just actually like a, it's, it's, you, you can change your physiology a little bit, like pretty quickly with calming techniques. It's not, you know, not, not magic. Ray, Ray Allen, who played in the NBA for a number of years, one of the best shooters of all time, used to run on the treadmill and try to control his heart rate and, and put himself in that intense environment so that when he stepped on the floor and had to make a big shot for the Miami Heat, he was where he needed to be. Um, one of the 
fascinating pieces that you talk about in the book is this idea of grit. And I want to mix grit with agility because I think you also hit on agility, the ability to drop your tools as a firefighter, uh, the importance of being agile. Before we started recording, you even talked about Francis, who was the CEO of the Girl Scouts and her ability to be agile. I'd love to hear you riff a little bit on thoughts on grit and agility. And I even want to go to your mindset as a runner, because for me, especially distance runners, more so cross country marathon runners have to have the grit to keep going. Whereas I look at yogis who have to be really agile. And so for me, there's like a formula that I'm working with, which is sort of grit plus agility times a growth mindset is actually where resilience lies. And the mistake sometimes we make is just to say, stay gritty and put your head down and keep going and you miss the agility. And sometimes we are just agile and we miss the opportunity to stick with something that's painful, like writing a book. Um, and then this idea of growth mindset, which Carol Dweck coined, which is just, we're not there yet and we're developing. So I, I just spoke for way too long, but basically the question is essentially how you think about grit, how you think about agility, and if you think that they interplay, if they're separate, and how they potentially impact resilience. I mean, not only do I think they they interplay, you know, grit again, just the quick refresher, it's based on a 12-question survey. Half the points are awarded for persistence of effort and half the points for consistency of interest. So perseverance and sticking with the same thing. Um, and I was, I was just in Angela Duckworth's class. She's the researcher most famously associated with grit. I was just in her... Um, so I, I critiqued and ranged some of the ways that grit has been received, essentially. And she and I had a great conversation about that interface of grit, which is just sticking with something no matter what, and, and adaptability, which is pivoting in response to the lived experience, you know, not just, not just putting your head down and going if it's not necessarily the right thing to do. And I think that is an incredibly difficult line to delineate perfectly. And I think Angela finds it that way as too. If you, the same week range came out, her, she has a weekly newsletter. If you Google summer is for sampling, that's her newsletter. The same week my book came out and it's about how uh, kids need to take the summer and sample different stuff because how will they know what to be gritty in until they've explored these different possibilities. And if you read it, you might come away saying, so she says, well, so what does grit look like in a kid of X age? I can't remember what the age is. Well, it might look like she doesn't want to do the track team this year and she wants to try the school newspaper. And, and so you, you might come away from the letter saying, huh, so what is your message? Is it you should be gritty when you should be gritty? You know, and I think that's, that's difficult. But I think that's the truth, right? Because I, I think she's grappling, I think she's very honest about it and grappling with um, the idea that we should teach people to be gritty with the idea that we want them to be gritty when it makes sense to be gritty and that sometimes those might be in zero-sum competition. And so I don't think there's a perfect answer to that, but I think I recognize it, I think she recognizes it. And I think one of the things to keep in mind as you figure that out is, is what's called self-regulatory learning. I mentioned this very briefly in the sports scene, very briefly in the context of uh, these, these Dutch studies called the Groningen Talent Studies. I apologize to any Dutch people for my pronunciation there. Um, but I, I, want, I want Americans to be able to Google, Google it. Um, I don't know how Dutch my audience is, but we okay. can look on Google Analytics or whatever the analytics thing, I'll, I'll look it up. <laughs> Uh, and basically, these were studies where kids in classrooms, in soccer programs, whatever, were followed from the age of 12 
you know, up some of them became ended up on their teams that, you know, were runners up in the World Cup, and some of them became, uh, you know, did really well in school and all these things. And one of the traits that was common to them, um, so like if, if you couldn't hit seven meters a second on a soccer field, you weren't going to be a pro soccer player. Fine. So there were some, you know, some physiological characteristics that matter. But whether it was classroom or soccer pitch, they showed this, um, what the leader of the study, Mariah Elfring Gemser, called self-regulatory learning, which is they take responsibility for their own learning, which generally involves a lot of reflection. So if you'd see videos of these kids at age 12, they'd be the ones on the field where they're told to do a drill and they're kind of going to the coach like, what's this working on again? I think this is too easy for me. I already did this. I need to work on this other thing. And the coach might be like, oh God, just get back in line and do it. You know, but they are, they are reflecting on where they think their learning is and trying to figure out what they need to work on and what they need to do. And so Mariah told me, if, if I could give you one word that's a takeaway from being a better um, self-regulatory learner, which leads you to learn more about your own interests and your own abilities and your own weaknesses, which, which it turns out we don't, fully just into it as well as we should. It's reflection. So you need a system for reflection that forces you after you do something. What was I better at than I thought? What was I worse at than I thought? Who do I need to help me get better in the things uh, that I'm better at? What did I not like that I thought I would like? Um, and, and those sorts of things, a system of reflection. Let me, let me make, I, I'm, I'm, I wrote an afterword for range, but it's not in yet because the pandemic has slowed down the publishing process. So it, it hasn't gone into the paperback yet. But in it, I expand on something that's related to this that right now is only a footnote on page 140 called talent-based branching. And this is a program the Army started when they started hemorrhaging their highest potential future officers. And what they found was that essentially, to, to make a long story short, those officers weren't being given enough chance to explore their own interests and abilities and then pivot once they realized they weren't what they thought they were. So they would just leave the Army and go and do it in the private sector. So the army started, well, first they threw money at them and those who were going to stay took it and those who were going to leave left anyway, half a billion dollars taxpayer money didn't change retention at all. Then they started this talent-based branching where instead of saying, here's your career track, get up or out, they say, we're going to pair you with a coach-like mentor, try this one career track, reflect on how it fits your interests and abilities, take some tests, you know, keep track of your reflections in an online portal, then try another and another and two others. And, and with your coach, and your reflection in the tests, you'll triangulate a better fit for yourself. 90% of cadets who went through talent-based branching changed their career preference. 90% of them. And it changed retention where money couldn't, giving them the chance to reflect on what they were doing while they were trying different things so they could kind of, and to fit it into the discussion I had with Angela, I think that was this, this pre-process that helped them figure out a better place to be gritty rather than just being gritty in the first thing they tried. I want to come back to Angela in a minute. Before I do, just for our audience, like I've studied the Blue Angels. I've got friends who are Navy SEALs. Uh, I've had CIA operatives on this podcast. They all talk about reflecting after they do a mission. And they're so big on reflecting and getting better. So organizationally, I think it's massive. So that's on the organization side. And then individually, I've spent time with a lot of MBA people and somebody who high, high up at an MBA team um, was familiar with the coaching staff for the U S Olympic team. And somebody on that coaching staff, I'll just leave it anonymous was talking about the difference between Kobe Bryant and Carmelo Anthony. And basically said the difference between Kobe and Carmelo is if you tell Carmelo what to do, he's just going to say, yes, sir. He's going to go do it. 
if you tell Kobe what to do, he's going to ask why. And he's going to be super curious back to how we started this conversation and then reflecting on it and what happened and why it is so that he can make meaning out of it. So there's no doubt in his mind when he's performing. And these are two elite performers. And I went to Syracuse, by the way, and I'm the same age as Carmelo. So I am forever indebted to Carmelo Anthony, right? Like the, the guy can do no wrong in my mind. However, Carmelo's career, while great, is not at the level of Kobe's. And you look at those two guys and you try to figure out, well, what's the difference? And I think a lot of it comes back to Kobe's curiosity. His favorite book was Curious George and his ability to reflect and think about ways to get better, whether that was going and working on footwork with Akeem Olajuwon or watching film or getting in the weight room, like this relentless pursuit to learn, which, oh, by the way, is one of the reasons why I think he was able to transition when he did retire. And unfortunately his life was cut short because he was obsessed with basketball, but he was always picking the brain of Michael Jackson. He would call up Oprah. He would always look to learn from people outside of his craft to develop. So it fits well with you. Back to the duck, duck If you want to go on that piece, feel free. Um, go ahead. Just like two, two quick things. One is we don't, I don't know how Kobe got to the place where he did that. But I think the fact is some people do it naturally, but other people should, that it doesn't come as naturally to need to build in systems for reflection. Um, and secondly, you're what, mentioning- si- What systems would you recommend? Is there I mean, any- I think it could be something as easy. What Mariah recommended to me, Mariah Elfrank Gemser, this scientist, was she sent me this list of questions that was, was like these things like, what did I do? What was I better at than I thought? What was I worse at than I thought? What do I need to do to get better at it? Who do I need to help me to do that? Stuff like that. And she said, answer the same questions like every month and you think you'll answer them the same, you won't answer them the same. You'll be answering them differently all the time. So anything as simple as like journaling, you know? You know what's amazing? So my clients, I send them an every meeting worksheet before we meet. And so every single meeting, the way I work is there's usually homework in between meetings. So every single meeting they have to answer, reflect on your homework from our last meeting to this meeting. What do you want to work on today? What would make our time together successful? Why is this meaningful to you? And what's currently getting in the way? And then post-meeting, I, I always end our conversations. What did you learn about your situation? What did you learn about yourself? And what do you want to work on between now and our next meeting? And so I get to play. The rest of the time, we get to ask questions and play, but those questions frame our, our work. And I think it allows my clients to reflect and gain way more from our, our conversations because of those questions. So I love where you went with that. To, to Duckworth and to Gladwell with both of those people, you mentioned, all right, I'm going to be prepared when I have conversations. I know I've done my research. I know I've, I've studied it. Even so, when you are challenging somebody who also has done a lot of work and prepared and is super smart and yada, 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 what do you think the keys to the discourse and the conversation with those people are? I watched you on a stage with Gladwell and, and Gladwell is probably best known for his book Outliers, where he brings up the 10,000 hour rule. And, and there were all unintended consequences to that, just like the unintended consequences of grit. And if your books do well enough, they're probably unintended consequences to range in the sports gene that will come. But in a world now where discourse is needed and, and difficult conversations are, are so important, what do you think has allowed you to have conversations with Angela Duckworth and with Malcolm Gladwell, what's underneath it? Could you put your finger on what's been, what's allowed you to cultivate relationships with those people? For one, being respectful, (laughs) I think is a baseline and also reading all of their work. Like I'm not going to go criticize someone until I've read the, you know, I've read all their work. And even when I go to interview people, um, I try to really 
as Robert Caro, the great, uh, you know, one of the greatest nonfiction writers probably ever says, turn every page. Like I turn every page of their work. And so if they disagree with me, that's fine, but they're not going to find me not having considered something that they said. And so I think that's sort of a form of respect. Disagreement's fine, um, but I'm not, you know, I'm not gonna get surprised by something else uh, that they bring up. And, and I sort of view this back and forth of ideas as long as everyone's polite is essential. I mean, I know I'm, you know, writing long books about science, something I'm writing about is going to turn out to be wrong. The problem is I don't know what it is yet. And so I think approaching it, you know, from the standpoint of humility that we're all trying to update our mental models um, and, and assuming that, that they are acting on good faith also. Uh, and then it's, then it's no problem. I mean, that, that debate was the first time I met Malcolm. And one of my debate strategies was when I was reading all this stuff, pick out things that were that I could verifiably go look in the data to see if they were true or false, right? I wanted to pick out falsifiable statements that I could pin him to on stage, basically. Your parents, the the, the lawyers in that, they would be proud of you taking that approach. Yeah, I mean, in, in fact, if you notice the introduction there, I suggested that we both introduce the other person's idea. We were originally asked to introduce our own idea, but I wanted to make sure that I had a definition for his idea that I could then work with. So I wanted to introduce the other person's idea and know what he thought about mine. Um, and, and actually when he's incredibly open-minded, as he says, I'm at the point where I have the luxury of being able to learn from my critics. So when we came off stage, the, the introduction to range is called Roger versus Tiger, contrasting the development patterns of Roger, Federer and Tiger Woods. And that came from the fact where when we got off stage, he said, you know, that thing about late specialization of athletes, like and we talked for a few minutes about Roger and Tiger, like you really got me on that one. That actually doesn't fit with my hypothesis. You wanna to run together tomorrow when we both get back to New York? Then we became running buddies and started talking about this stuff on our own time. And it would, we'd talk about the Roger versus Tiger problem, which became the title of the introduction of my book out of our debates. It became this incredibly, had he, had he approached, had he gone on that stage and just tried to eviscerate me, um, which he certainly could have done, like he's obviously, you know, the much bigger figure, uh, I think, we would have left our relationship there. And instead, I think it became a really productive intellectual partnership for both of us. Um, and so I try to follow that model a little bit. You know, I think he set a good model in that way. And by the way, in 2019, back at Sloan, this one's also on YouTube. In the last few minutes, I asked him how his mind has changed since our last talk five years ago or debate or whatever. And he says, oh, I think I conflated two ideas. The fact that it takes a lot of practice to become great with the idea that that implies early specialization, which I now think is, is, he says that it takes a lot of practice to be great, which I think is true, with the fact that that implies specialization, which I now think is, is false. So he said that, you know, up on stage, like he's a very open-minded guy. And my, my whole chapter 10 of range is about the, the benefits to decision and judge, judgment, decision-making of open-mindedness. So I try to live by the research I, I read, and I think that comes across when I interact with people. And I try to highlight things of their work that has really stimulated me too. You know, so when I talk to Angela, um, I, I try to highlight ways that I think her work's been misinterpreted and also things I really appreciate about it. And uh, that's to me sort of how the debates should go, always respectful, right? It's kind of negotiation 101. A lot of people think that negotiation is just about zero sum and any negotiation expert other than the current president uh, pretty much disagrees with that because it's short-term thinking. And uh, most businesses and most people have to 
be more long-term minded when they're negotiating. If you go zero sum, you burn bridges and eventually it usually comes back to bite you. So I've had on two negotiation experts on, on this podcast and both of them talk about getting the other person what they want. Like that's the name of the game. And as I hear you talk about starting off at Sloan, the ability to present each other's ideas puts you automatically in a place of empathy. And now we can have a conversation. As I'm hearing you talk, the one thing I'm curious about when we think about range and specialization um, is, is this idea of like when. And so to acquire a skill there, I know you talk about repetition in the book and the importance of experimenting. And from my perspective, yes, experimentation is where creativity lies. Soccer players, they, they talk about it all the time. You know, the guys in Brazil and Argentina are playing futsal and they're playing on, on pavement instead of a field. And like, uh, I understand that, but then there's also the skill acquisition piece, which also can repetition can take place. So Serena Williams, for example, and the ability to master a skill. So my thing is, is it possible that it's actually both? Is it, is it possible that we need time and space to create and to be creative and have our mind learn how to be agile? And then we also need to have the grit to stay with something and just, you know, repeat it over and over again, because I look at shooting and basketball, um, a Ray Allen, a Kyle Korver, a Steph Curry, like they do have to just repeat, repeat, repeat. And then they have to learn how to be able to do a crossover and create and um, invent something like James Harden, for example. And so when I talk to teams, I'm often talking about practice should be the mixture of a preparation mind and a performance mind. So a great practice will simulate time and score and put you in a place where you're not going to have the coach barking orders at you and you're going to have to figure it out so that when you get between the lines, you know how to handle it. And oh, by the way, you need to have the preparation mind of being humble and perfectionistic and, and nail all those other pieces. So from my lens, when this happens, it, it, 10 years old, 12 years old, 14, 16, I think that's, that's where a lot of science would say push it to maybe 14, 15, 16. But I think there's a missed opportunity because we're not necessarily talking about the value of both because I think that there's a tremendous value in you know, drilling and playing. Uh, curious to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think the average age of a division one scholarship athlete, the time that they like really specialize is like 15.6, I want to say. Um, but, but, you know, there's a tremendous amount of individual variation and, and to speak to Serena, I had a chance to talk to her uh, recently. And to my surprise, I was talking to her because I was partly for writing for an afterword. I wanted to say, look, I don't want to prescribe uh, diversification any more than I want specialization to be prescribed. Like we need to keep a lot of pipelines open. And so I went to her to say, look, Serena did sort of more of the tiger path and that worked out. And then she said, no, no, no. My dad had me do ballet, track, taekwondo, soccer, gymnastics, my overhand service from learning how to throw a football, which is how I still warm up. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess that's. Did guess she change at like, at like 10 though? When did she go to IMG Academy? Like maybe like 10 years old where. I don't know. I don't her. know. Yeah. He, and she told me that her dad actually pulled her and Venus out of like the the tour early to like let them do others. So I was a little surprised by that. But but no, absolutely, I think it's a both. Absolutely, I think it's a both. And I think that's partly too because this frame that I sort of set up early in the book in the first chapter of the kind versus the wicked learning environment. I think as a little do the kind. I'm going to simplify this a lot. And it's a spectrum. It's a spectrum. But it this was something. 
um, th those aren't my terms. They, they arose because there's a conundrum in expertise research that sometimes people get better just from doing something over and over and sometimes they don't. And, and why, why is that? And it turns out that a lot of it has to do with the characteristics of a domain, which is how kind it is, which means how exactly similar is it gonna be the next time you see it, basically, how much can you rely on pattern recognition and versus how much do you need to be agile and, and maybe the next time won't be exactly the same, where you can use skills, but it won't be exactly the same. And I think when you think of something like, like basketball, you have certain aspects and certain skills that are gonna be the same, and then others that have to be able to adapt very rapidly. And so I think you encompass some of the kind and some of the wicked. And so you really need to encompass, um, you know, if you were only shoot, if, if basketball were just a free throw shooting contest, then I think it would be all a kind learning environment and you would only need the drilling, but it isn't. So I think you need to encompass what we know about both of the different kinds of development for the kinder and the more wicked learning environment. Yeah. And in sports psychology, we'd call open-ended versus sort of close-ended as well. Um, I, I think it's spot on. I always said like, a kicker in football is much different than a linebacker. Like their, their jobs are very different and you know, a linebacker is different than a golfer. And so like this idea that it's one mindset or it's one, one approach, I think that's where maybe authors run into problems where it's, it's this one thing. Like yeah. it's just this. Well, that's incredibly attractive. I've gotten that, you know, like when I did my first book, and I go to the publishers, some of them that were interested in the book. So is it going to be nature? Or is it going to be nurture? I'm like, it's, it's without both genes and environments, there are no outcomes. So it's going to be both. Right. And some of them that turn them off. So I can, I can understand the pressure that a lot of authors get to simplify. And it's interesting because sports gene definitely talked about nature and nurture, but probably the takeaway was nature is important. And most people, that's probably what the sticky point was, you know, butting up against the 10,000 hour rule and, and sort of, no, well, genes also play a role. Um, and then range to me is actually a nurture book. Um, like it's a lot about, well, how are we actually going to nurture? Is that how you think about it um, in relation to nature and nurture? Sort of. I mean, so the sports team to me, when I delved into this area of the science, my feeling was that there were two, if you looked at this two extreme sides of the debate, there were people who thought that only nurture mattered. And there were people who thought that nature and nurture mattered. There was no nature only camp. And I, you know, in looking at the work, thought only one of those was really extreme. And, and the way um, that I think it dovetails with some of range. So is this the areas of range where I write about match quality, this, you know, this degree of, this, that's a term economists use to describe the degree of fit between someone's interests and abilities and the work they do. Very important for their sense of well-being and, and, and their grit. Like when you get fit, you'll display the characteristics of grit. Um, and the, the most impactful stuff to me in the sports scene was about trainability. This idea that the same people, two people can do the same exact training and get more different, not more the same because it works better for one person than another. And, and so range, I think, is sort of an extension where it's like you have to do some of this experimentation to find that place that fits for you because it isn't just following the exact same footsteps as someone else. And so I think it was still acknowledging that we have different proclivities, um, but because all of this, the, the very conceptual similarity of these books is my, these, these sort of three questions that stick in my head, which is what uh, differences between people, whether nature, nurture, whatever, I don't care, whether from day to nighttime, whatever it is, are real, not just assumptions or intuitions or biases or whatever. 
Two, which of those matter to the outcomes we care about? And three, how can we then use that knowledge to try to get out optimal outcomes for all people? And so I think that is, is sort of a, a theme of inquiry that to me ran through both books. It's interesting being around uh, the NBA combine and you'd get the measurements in all these white dudes had short arms and, and you're like, what is going on there? And you get a Rajon Rondo is like a plus, they would always call like plus 10, like six foot one, but plus 10 inches, like six eleven wingspan. And I, I remember like, this was crazy, but I had a spreadsheet on, on looking at that. And I was like, there's something here genetically different between their wingspans. And, this is early 2000s. Anyone around basketball knew that length was like the number one thing that teams look for and they're looking for length. And, you know, your book got into wingspan. It also got into speed. And I know speed's, you know, near and dear to your heart as a runner. And uh, you talk about your journey and I think you, you were a walk on in college. And then by the end, you're one of the top runners on your college team. Um, and so I, I love, I think it was in the book Peak Performance, uh, they talk about nurturing your nature which is such a cool concept. And I like those guys a lot, by the way. Yeah. Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus. Um, and like, I think that to me as a parent is, is what I've taken. I've got two small kids. Like how can I nurture my kid's nature and anybody who has more than one kid, like my kids couldn't be more opposite. Like <laughs> Sorry. forget fraternal twins believe in genetics. <laughs> oh my gosh. I talk to twins. I love talking to people that are, are twins about the differences, um, just personality wise. And my, my daughter, they're 14 months apart. So they're not twins, but our parenting hasn't, I don't think drastically changed in those 14 months, uh, between the two, you know, they're just so different. And I, we all, I have a tendency to, my son is more gentle, kind, um, easy as a kid. And my daughter is more difficult. And as a parent, it's, you want to go toward the easy and try to bring that out. But my daughter's fierce. She's tough. She's independent. She's got qualities that are going to serve her really well, especially as a female in this country. So it's interesting as a parent thinking about how do we nurture the nature while still keeping ourselves sane, because that's a big piece of the puzzle as well. Um, but I love, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. This gets at something again that I added this afterward that I'm upset isn't in the book yet because of, you know, that's right. I'm, there's only a pandemic I should be upset about not getting an afterward into my book. Um, but th that Tiger Woods, by the way, so this speaking of, of, of allowing the kids to unfurl their nature, sort of Tiger said in 2000, his father never once asked him to play golf, right? He said, it's the, the child's desire to play that matters, not the parent's desire to have the child play. And so his father noticed his unusual sort of interest and prowess early and then responded to that. Mozart was probably the second most impactful uh, prodigy story. Same deal. I was reading letters from his childhood and there's one where his family friend and musician comes over and little Mozart said he wants to play with the adults. And, and his father's like, what, get out of here. Like he says he wants to play second violin part. And Leopold Mozart's like, go away. You haven't had any lessons. You obviously can't play. He starts crying. So this other musician writing the letters guy, Andres Schachner, he says, I'll play with him in the other room, you know? So he stops crying. Then they hear the second violin part coming from there. And then the letter says, you know, the, the adults come in to look and they're like, what's going on? And it says, little Wolfgang was emboldened by our applause to insist that he could also play the first violin part. And his father's like awestruck, right? And then he responds to that by facilitating all this opportunity to practice. So I think it's important that we tell those stories correctly, which is not that they were parent manufactured from some master plan. The parents responded to this sort of unusual display of interest at a young age. And I'm not embarrassed to say this, like, 
I've talked to a child psychologist about how we can better parent. And one of the things that she recommended is to give like special time for the kid where you just let the kid lead and you just sort of repeat back what you're hearing and you can ask them questions, but it's not your time to lead. And, and it's amazing what that does. Um, because so often as parents, we think it's just put the letter of the law down and rule. And by the way, I don't have parenting figured out at all. If anybody does, please call me and email me because that would be really helpful. I've got it all figured out. My 16 yeah. months of experience, you know, I've got it all. Yeah, you're good. It's, <laughs> we, we could talk about this offline. But I think that is something that has been really helpful for us is there is a time to lay down the law and to make sure that they're following our rules and it's our house. But then there are these other times where you can empower them to actually take the lead and and learn and one of the things i think duckworth's formula to to be fair that she gets critiqued for that's i think a little unfair is it's passion and perseverance so i think a lot of times people just focus on the perseverance piece but she does say hey it should be passion now what an eight-year-old knows to be passion could be pleasure and it it could get convoluted but um i just want to point that out the last part maybe we can end with is before we we started recording you talked about the girl scout ceo and how she goes about leading and a lot of people that do listen to this uh based on people that text me uh and say that they enjoy it uh is, is around leadership and so uh, what are some things you noticed in in talking to her um, that were sort of interesting and that you've taken with you in, in your life today? Sort of a few main things. And by the way, she has she took her first professional job at the age of 54 and went on to become CEO of the Girl Scouts one semester of junior college education, although she has 23 honorary doctorates now. And she basically saved the Girl Scouts because, you know, society was changing for girls and women in the late 60s and early 70s, and the Girl Scouts weren't. She came in, totally changed the place tripled minority membership, added 130,000 volunteers, turned the cookie business into the you know, hundreds of millions of dollars business that it is now. Um, and one of the things she did was she was sort of, uh, well, there were a couple of things. First, she had two particular values. One, as she always says, and, and I think about this all the time now, leadership is a matter of how to be, not what to do. She said, I, can't, I don't know all the stuff to do, but I know how I can be as an example. I know she was in, she, she still works. She runs a leadership Institute, works five days a week in Manhattan. She's 104, um, by the way. So, so who knows what's next? Um, and, you know, she was last year, she, she uh, fell and had to stay in the hospital for a little bit. And like, I was talking to someone who's staying with her in the hospital and I could hear her in the background, somebody getting mad at like a nurse or somebody that was around there and her like, taking away going Francis going away from the phone and going and just starting to say like pleasant stuff to that nurse just to like intervene and bring her up you know like this is every when I've had lunch with her this happens to people lunch she is doing this when the cameras are off being this way right and it rubs off on you it rubs off and so I think that was one one major thing another was when she came in she realized that she needed to do a lot of changing and that and I think this might resonate with people who are who are having to have sort of a decentralized, you know, team right now because we're all, many of us are remote. She realized she'd have to do a lot of changing and that if she could only get information, if, if the chain of communication was the same as the chain of command, where information would only come up through the chain of command, then by the time she got information about how her decisions were affecting people downstream, the situation, and, and that came back up, the, the situation would have changed enough that her decision would be late. The next decision would be late. So she said, I need to be able to get information quickly about how the decisions I make are affecting people where the rubber meets the road. So she implemented this org chart that she called circular management, where you picture like a, you know, like an archery target. She's the bullseye. 
and there's rings around her and, and people are sort of beads on those rings. Each person has multiple contacts through whom they can advance ideas or concerns to the center. So she's constantly getting this flow of information, that differentiating the chain of communication of the, from the chain of command so that she could constantly communicate with people and so that she could get information from every layer of the organization so she could understand her decision-making. And I think that's a theme that I've sort of seen with leaders in times of change. They differentiate the chain of communication and the chain of command because if they're only getting information in a pattern that mimics the chain of command, it's not happening fast enough and it's not happening broadly enough. And so I thought that was something sort of brilliant that allowed her to go into a mode of experimentation because she knew she could get feedback more rapidly and then kind of iterate. It's a great place for us to, to wind down. You said something earlier as it related to, you know, having difficult conversations and to assume positive intent. And I love this idea. I don't know if I came up with this or I read it somewhere, but like, I love this idea of assuming positive intent and then don't assume at all. And I think too often leaders assume that they know the answers or that they have all the answers rather than listening and having those lines of communication open. And that's often where organizations start to falter and teams start to break down because there's a whole lot of assumption and there's stories that go on and it's not based on any truth um, in, in any context. So I'm almost picturing what you're talking about as a web um, more so than even a circle. It's like yeah. you got the center of the web and then you have all these other connections that sort of challenge basic assumptions that people might have to get to assertions and to get to truths. And I, I end there because I think your books are, are about assertions and uh, it's just, it's awesome to read because there's all kinds of gems in there and uh, they're, they're, they're truths. And that doesn't mean truths can't change and alter and science has a way of altering and changing as it evolves. But I just want to thank you for, for writing them. Uh, I, you know, I, I've just, started on this journey and the pain of writing a book is real. And for me, yeah. at least, uh, you know, three years of doing it, I hired a coach who was really helpful for me. Um, and, uh, so I just want to thank you for keeping going and, and, and making sure that you were doing the best work you possibly can. It's been really helpful for me. Um, and if people want to learn more about what you're up to, um, maybe if you have another book idea and that they're going to want to read, uh, where can they get all that information? Uh, well, I have a I have an, a newsletter that's um, I recently started. I think you can find it at davidepstein.com. It's called the Range Report. Um, and if they if they click the newsletter tab on my website, they can see previous versions, so they can decide if they want to sign up or not. Um, basically, so yeah, that's 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 a good place. And also, I appreciate what you're doing because I know these questions, whatever nature or nurture, how broad or specialized to be, these are things that are impossible to answer perfectly because everyone's in a different situation, but they're important to everyone. We discuss them all the time, but we usually only do it with pure intuition. So I think if we can bring some experience, some stories, some research to it, we can make those discussions more um, productive and interesting. And I think that's a service. Terrific. And social media wise, is Twitter where you're most active? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, at David Epstein. Awesome. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, and you can listen to all these conversations at intentionalperformers.com, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. David, great to get to know you over Zoom. Yeah. Uh, hopefully we can meet, meet at the zoo with your 16 month old and I can bring my, you can see my kids in action and see the, the nature and nurture uh, up close and personal, but looking forward to getting to know you better. And thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. And I find that, you know, some version of imposter syndrome to be often helpful in 
um, the preparation phase. So like, for example, in Range, where I wrote the, the chapter about the Venetian orphans who became these great musicians. When I was going through that stuff, I'm thinking, you know, gosh, who am I to write about music? And then, but then you start thinking, okay, how is a musicologist probably going to critique me, right? And then, so I think that that takes you to a place of really being careful and doing doing some some extra work. At the same time, eventually you have to be confident in that material. Like eventually, it's got to go on the page and it's going to go out to a bunch of people, and you have to be confident. And I especially feel that in speaking because I was, you know, I, I ended up being like a nationally competitive runner, um, and uh, I was I, I would get very nervous before races. <laughs> I'm, I've done a lot of speaking now and I still get nervous before talks, right? So I still have that feeling, but once once the gun would fire in a race or once I'm up on stage, like I hate the waiting part, but once I'm up there, I'm, I'm confident.